Greetings and welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. Let's fill in the dot, dot, dots with Brian Mannix uh, on the Gold Coast from the penthouse where it's 25 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, gee, hi. Hello, Brian. Hello, Kev. It's a <laughs> wonderful day yeah. on the Gold Coast. It's 25, 26 degrees. Yeah. Not a cloud in the sky. Yeah. The surf is good. It's uh, really there's... A lot to like. Well, I, and good luck to you for, for being there and doing that. Well, thank you, Kev. It's uh, lovely to be here. And, um, you know, just out of the cold, I just, I just get really depressed when it's cold. So this is um, really nice for me you know, just because it just, you know, you look out the window and think, oh, I'm going to get up today. Yeah, I'm going to go and do something. Are you, do, are you doing that? Are you actually not sloughing until midday? Are you actually getting out of bed early and going for a walk or a swim or a jog or, you yeah. know, whatever? Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Well, you know, I get up probably about nine thirty, which is you know, like you know, that's a big improvement from eleven thirty. Yeah. Um, so you know, I just think up here that the sun gets up pretty early, about five past five, and you just sort of think, oh well, you just wake up earlier, and you sort of think, oh well, I'll I'll do some more with the day. Well, well you're going to get daylight. Well, you're not going to get daylight saving where you are, but you're going to be living in that that wonderful thing where. Within five minutes of where you stand, it's a different time slot to five minutes from where you're standing, if you know what I mean, uh, in a week or so's time when daylight saving comes in. Yeah, it's all a bit silly. They should have daylight saving. It's ridiculous. Well, you know, it was the sun at 5.30. You don't need it then. Get it at 6.30. That's fine. Uh, They're ridiculous that we're not on the same time zone. We live in, you know, the same country. It's just silly. Silly. Yeah, well, they're all on the same, you know, time latitude or... Yeah. So, so it should be the same. Yeah. But anyway, it's exactly. not because Queenslanders just want to do things their own way. Yeah, fair enough. I uh, want to talk about uh, our guest today with two beauties, uh, Ronnie Charles, who was the lead singer of The Group, well, a big, big, huge mm. band. I love The Group uh, back in the uh, late 1960s. Brian Cad, Don Moody, Ronnie Charles, uh, Max Ross, uh, they, they were a terrific lineup. They had uh, they won the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds and then went to England and uh, had some adventures there. So we're going to talk to Ronnie about all that and. And it's a bit of an I love that song moment for me because Such a Lovely Way was such a big song for me when I was a teenager. I thought it was just a great song. He is a great song and um, Ronnie's a great guy. Yeah, he is I a good was, bloke. Oh, we had a really good chat with Ronnie and, um, you know, we learnt a little bit along the way so that was good. Yeah, so we've got Ronnie coming up and we've got uh, another part, uh, the final part of our interview with the man who used to be tour manager for the Rolling Stones and manager of the Grateful Dead, uh, the great Sam Cutler will be joining us. Well, he's a card. He's he funny. is a character. <laughs> he, yeah. He is a character. Um, yeah, no, he, he's good. He just calls it the way he sees it. And at 80 years of age, uh, now uh, sort of uh, uh, lives here in Australia, uh, of no fixed abode really, he just kind of cavorts around a bit, of a, a bit of a gypsy these days and jumps in his bus and goes wherever he wants to go. And why not? Yeah, why wouldn't you? You know, it's a beautiful country. He's Getting his van and away he goes. Still Season. chasing, still chasing the girls. So why shouldn't absolutely, he? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. He's rocking. Uh, but maybe he needs a bit of a check up on uh, his driving skills. We might need to, we might need to point him in the right direction there, and we will to mercots.edu.au. That's the website that he should be uh, jumping on, not those other ones that he probably is. And the telephone number you should be calling is Brian. One three hundred triple five five seven six, Kevin. Very good. Once again, one three hundred triple five five seven six. Now we talk a, a lot about Mercots, but they've got uh, they've got driver awareness workshops they're running uh, all the time, which just you know gives you a, a bit of a catch up on where you're at, which is where is where we all should be. Uh, defensive driving training they do that on all sorts of uh, all sorts of levels. They can cater for young drivers or for people who've been on the road for many years, like. Like I have, or like Brian used to be, uh, and you know, you'll you'll find a level there that will suit you that you'll be able to improve what you're currently doing behind the wheel of the car, and that's really important, really important. Is indeed, and um, you know, if you've got, you know, somebody in your son or somebody just getting their license, probably not a bad idea to get them a little bit of extra help. 
Uh, and the other thing that a lot of people are doing these days too is going from the normal sort of stock standard, uh, you know, motor vehicle into a four-wheel drive or a bigger vehicle because you're travelling around the countryside, you're doing whatever you're doing. So you've, you've all of a sudden gone from your, your stock standard Holden or Ford into, uh, you know, an SUV, uh, a, a four-wheel drive. Learn how to drive the thing. How many times are you driving around and you see someone in one of those who clearly has no idea of what the, what they've got, uh, what they're driving around in? So talk to Murcotts. They'll fix it up mm, for you. They will, you know, and just even if you just get the Murcotts to teach you how to park one of those big that'd SUVs. Be, that'd be fairly handy too, just quietly. Um, oh, look, luckily Phil's got a big one and um, she's trying to park it. Jeez, I've got a pretty narrow car parking space, but... You know, I think I'll go down to Murcotts and get them to teach me how to park it. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Now, when you when you uh, you know when we set up these interviews with the with the people that we talk to, uh, we mm. do we do mobile phones. We do uh, you know sometimes we do Zoom chats with them. We do uh, uh, very rarely do we do landline phones. But you know, there's all WhatsApp and uh, and Facebook and all sorts of weird, wonderful ways that we bring you uh, our guests each week. This was old style with Ronnie Charles. This was really old style. We we he gave me a number, uh, a landline number, and I rang it. And when I rang it, I had Brian on uh, on Zoom, uh, and we we're going to talk mm. to Ronnie and and you know go through the good old days. But when I rang the number, something most unusual happened that uh, that clearly I wasn't and Brian wasn't expecting. Here's what happened. Federal police. Hello. This is the federal police. What? This is the federal police. Who, who am I speaking to? Uh, sorry, ma'am. Oh, hello. Are you? <laughs> hello. Who is it? It's it's Kevin Hillier. Is Ronnie there? <laughs> oh, Kevin Hillier. Sorry, Kevin Hillier. You can we can talk to you. It's just that I get all these great yeah, calls from everywhere, no and I always say I'm detection. Uh, I'm from the federal police. So. I shit myself. <laughs> then I thought I dialed the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got Mannix on Zoom looking at me like going, what the fuck is going on here? Sorry, it's just I had this really weird person uh, the other day and she wouldn't wouldn't let up and I said, Look, I can see you in your little seat there in your shed in wherever you are and she hung straight up but I always say that because I get all these crank calls fifty times a day. Well we're coming in anyway, to change I'll- the light bulbs in your house, is that all right? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hang on, I'll just get Ron for you. I'm Jen, by the way. Hello, Jen. <laughs> nice to meet you. That is so funny. Hold on. I think we'll, I think we'll do half an hour with Jen. You know, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we get these calls. You know, this is the taxation department. Oh. You know those things. And oh, you go, yeah. <laughs> so we either don't answer the phone or if we do, we go, federal force. <laughs> I oh, shit. I really, I know. I seriously, I thought, Jesus, maybe Ronnie's given me the wrong number or I've. I've ah, that's I've, right. That's, I've been right. busted. Yeah, yeah, the Ray, they're all here. So there you go. It, it would be fair to say, Brian, that you and I were, were crapping ourselves uh, because I thought I thought I'd hit a digit wrong or done something. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what you'd done, but I thought we don't want the federal police on the show. Not not that, um, not that either of us are guilty of anything, you know, that we should be worried about. It's just that thing that's ingrained in your persona, isn't it, where you go, ah, the police. Oh, uh-oh. Yes, not good at all. No, but, not. Um, so we, we should get a... We should get a porn star on this show, I reckon, Kev. All right, we'll come back to that. Let's talk to Ronnie Charles first. Then we'll come back to uh, whether or not we get a porn star on the on the show. Ronnie's not. <laughs> Ronnie's a rock star. Let's talk to him. All right. Okay, but next, we've got to think about a porn star, though. I think it might be interesting. Anyway, let's talk to Ronnie. <laughs> After Sam. I don't know. Who are we talking to? <laughs> Ronnie. Ronnie. Okay. Okay. Now, you're well, you're healthy, your, your voice is in good fettle? Yes, yes, no, I'm good. I had a little bit of a thing, a procedure a couple of years ago under my lymph glands under my ear, um, but I uh, had to have some taken out and, uh, yeah, wondered about that. I thought I might have been, um, you know, doing a different repertoire. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, like so, I, either an octave up or an octave down. No, it was all good. Nothing to do with the voice. It was good and uh, stopped me smoking after 50 years, which was good. You, have, you and, were you a smoker for all those years when you were singing you were a smoker? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I smoked from like everyone from my generation from when we were 16 because you used to go to the dances that were no alcohol. And uh, if you liked the girl, you'd say, Do you want to come out and have a fag? <laughs> of course, you know, go say, out. I don't know if you'd say <laughs> that today. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> 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 no, but you'd be, you'd be a loser. Yeah. Goodness me, I don't know, because you've got such a big, powerful, strong, full voice, and you always have had. Well, I started out, that all came from, look, I was always singing from when I was a kid, but um, from, you know, and the scouts and blah, 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 but um, I went to radio, I went to Lee Murray's, my brother's best friend was Bill Rule. Yep. And uh, he was on radio, and. He used to come and talk about his, because he'd landed a gig in the country and talk about radio. And, you know, I loved music in those days, and I thought, oh, yeah, I want to be a radio announcer. So I went to Lee Murray in Russell Street, and Mel Walden and people like that were there then, and Philip Brady would stick his head in and things like that. And I was only about 14, but it, I learned to project and forward into the tip of the tongue stuff and, you know, doing this, the reading ads and going there a couple of times during the week. But when the Beatles came and the whole music thing changed, because before that we used to go to trad jazz dances when I was sort of 15 and Red Onion Jazz Band, all that sort of thing. Um, but when all the music thing changed and it became the rock and roll thing with the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals... I had a voice that could do House of the Rising Sun. Mm. And unlike a lot of the early bands, because they were all sort of cover band type things, my first band was like that. Um, and then the Jackson Kings, which I was in with Brian Cadd, that's where we met. We were doing Madford Man and Animals as opposed to a lot of the other bands who were doing the searches and Beatles stuff. So... That's really how it all started, yeah. Hey, before the Jackson Kings, wasn't wasn't there a little flirtation with somebody's image and with Russell Morris? Well, that was my that was our band. That was our sort of after school band. I joined the group when on my eighteenth birthday. Um, so really, before that, I was only in the Jackson Kings for about three or four months before. They came in, the group came in to have a farewell dinner and drinks at the garrison for in, in 1966 with uh, Peter McKetty, their lead singer at the time, was going overseas to do his studies in London and he was leaving the band. So they were there just to have a send-off drinkies and things and they heard myself and, and saw the Jackson Kings with Brian and myself and we were doing... You know, things like Young Rascal stuff and a bit of Animals. And the old group was sort of skiffle band sort of music. It was sort of R&B, but it had a kind of trad feel to it. And if they were going to take a new direction, it would be into a sort of more R&B, more like what we were sort of doing in the Jackson Kings. So we were the perfect fit, really. The Somebody's Image thing was just an after-school thing. Oh, okay. All the guys, we just all started. And the reason I joined the Jackson Kings is because I was singing. I wanted to, I was struggling at the bit. You know, I wanted to get out. And, and it was just a weekend gig. I remember talking Brian into giving up his day gig Can to he? join the group. <laughs> yeah. Because he had a serious job at the time. He was a couple of years older than me. He didn't really know about the fact the group were very popular and they did a lot of high society stuff outside of the regular sort of dance gigs and things around Melbourne, they were earning really good money doing that. Brian wasn't really that aware of that. So I was saying, no, 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 don't worry. These guys work all the time. There's, there's going to be, you know, you won't have to worry about your income because he had the girlfriend from hell who was going, no, you can't give up your day job. And <laughs> <laughs> um, now, didn't you, didn't you famously talk the group into uh, including Brian because they didn't want to have a keyboard player? Well, it's not that they didn't want to. I was a fan of the old group, a big fan. In fact, my girlfriend and I used to go to all the Opus and Vice to watch the group. We loved them. They were one of the few, they were quite original. They were 
they're a bit different to, you know, them and the loved ones were sort of different. They weren't like a cover band. And uh, Max Ross is a gorgeous looking guy. My girlfriend was, you know, in love with him and sort of, all that sort of stuff. Then we broke up and about two months after that, I joined the group, so I had that moment where I could ring the ex-girlfriend and go, guess what, I've got a gig singing with the group. <laughs> no, look, it wasn't really what it was, is it because I, they were only a three-piece band, a guitar, bass and drums and a singer. And I just felt that if they were going to change, they needed a keyboard player. And all I really said, because Max Ross was talking to me about, you know, coming and having a, a play them. I said, look, he said, I like how you work with the keyboard player. I said, well, if you don't mind me saying, I think the group could really do with having keyboards as well because if you're going to change, it's going to mean a lot more, you're going to have a lot more flexibility to do this stuff. You can't do it without keyboards. But he was immediately into it. I mean, they were quite impressed with Brian, as you would be, you know. Now, you won the 67 Hardley's Battle and that was the, the you know, the big uh, thing that got you to go overseas and you went to England and did what everybody else did over there and had a shit of a time. And No, that's not right. No, we had a great... We were there for 10 months. As I said, the group were earning a lot of money. That continued and we were on sort of set income. We were managed by the same manager as the loved ones and... I joined in, in September 66. We did one single, which was Said I Was Sorry, and that was sort of to appease the already existing following of the group because it was a sort of old soul thing and it was a bit of a, you know, sort of halfway house of, of sort of music they used to play and the direction we wanted to go in. But our biggest influence for Woman You're Breaking Me was The Loved Ones because when we heard The Loved One, we realised that, because we were quite competitive with them uh, and, and they were just a little bit ahead of us that we needed to come up with something that was unique to the group. So that's what we went away and worked on and uh, came up with a couple of tracks and one of them was Woman You're Breaking Me. That had the feel and uh, and then we worked on a top line for it pretty much all together. So it was a bit of a joint effort, that one. Um, and... Within a year, we'd won, because that was in the sort of top five, in fact, made it to number two next to the likes of Wider Shade of Pale and All You Need Is Love. Um, <laughs> wow. the week before the, the week before the final. So, all, you know, all the stars aligned for the group in that year. And within that one year, we, we'd won the Battle of the Sounds and had virtually a number one record. So. Because the Twilights won the first one, didn't they? The first time. That's right, and of course everyone wanted to be in it. There were a thousand bands when when we everyone was in it. The Masters, Max Merritt, the Loved Ones. In fact, there was a very funny moment with the final because if you won the final in Melbourne, you pretty much had it in the day, and everyone was in it. And our manager stood on the stage with his Golden Boys in front of him because the Loved Ones were huge and had like you know. Two, two records in the top ten at once and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, at the moment they said, and the winner is the group. He had to do a 180 and go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you about recording in the 60s? Um, yeah. How many tracks did you have in the studio and how, you well, know, how long well, did it take to record, that sort of thing? Well, Again, I'll use the loved ones as an example. The loved ones were with W and G. W and G had their own studio, which was up near Flagstaff Gardens, so they could spend weeks on stuff. But the group and everyone else who was signed to major labels, that so we were CBS, you only had sort of six hours to go and put down two tracks. Wow. And and then you know you could go back and you'd get another three or four hours to maybe do any top stuff you wanted to do and mix it. But the group were lucky because we didn't have a producer. We had we had Roger Savage, who had done all the previous group stuff, and he got in very well with the older boys in the group, Max Ross and, and Richard Wright. He did us favours. We had an extra time above and beyond, you know, what was budgeted from Sydney, from CBS, so... Woman, you're breaking me. That session because we put down about four tracks, 
And then we went with the strongest, which was when you're breaking me to do the trimmings. Probably we probably did it in a couple of days, really. Are you you're essentially playing live because you only have about four tracks to. Well, no, the but, quarters, you know, you? because we had Roger, it was the bouncing down, you know. Yeah. Okay. He'd been trained in that. Roger learned his craft at, at Olympic Studios in London. We were very lucky having Roger because he was really good and he knew that he kind of had really built that studio uh, with Bill Armstrong in Albert Road. By the time we came back from England in 69 when we did such a lovely way, they'd gone to eight tracks. So, Ooh, uh, ooh, that's, that's, great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great song. I love, uh, I love well, when you break them in, but such a lovely way. I just thought it was a terrific song, and there's a song that still, I reckon, sounds really bloody good today. Well, that's a credit to Roger. You know, those tracks have never been really remastered. They just still sound really good. Yeah, but getting back to London, I mean, we were there for 10 months. We went over with $20,000. And wow. we bought ourselves a transit van. We picked up Normie Rose Marshall PA, which he'd left there from when he was over there with the Playboys. And uh, so we had a good PA. We had our own transit van. We lived in Chelsea. And by the end of the 10 months, it was really only Max Ross, because Molly came with us too on the ship. He went back. His mother died. And then Max Ross got ill, our bass player. So, but really... By the end of that 10 months, we were sort of working enough to actually pay our way because we had a good agent. We start, we, were one of the th we were the first band to play at the Marquee. Oh, wow. Uh, our first gigs actually were in London itself. We played at the Playboy Club for two weeks. Oh, um, great gigs. And then, then we were up and down, uh, you know, we did support for Brian Orbit Trinity and we did... All sorts of little gigs up and down the M1, and uh, CBS released "Woman, You're Breaking You There." It didn't didn't happen in England, but it did chart in some states in America, and we got a front page of the international section of uh, Cashbox yeah. in, in that year. But we we're in the wrong country because <laughs> London was a sort of really only one step above Australia in terms of being able to get things done, you know, unless you, all, your cut, all your ducks are in a row, um, it was, you know, very tough uh, as far as the recording side, you know, getting the hit records because there was no commercial radio. The, the uh, pirate radio was, it was winding down and if you didn't get played on the BBC, you, you were stuffed, really. It would have been a great time to be in London, you know, uh, the swinging 60s and all of that. Like, just the was, clubs and stuff would have been great. Oh, 68 was amazing. I went to the highlights of, of that go. We're going to see Fleetwood Mac, the original Fleetwood Mac, at a place called Middle Earth, which was a sort of weird disco with, um, discotheque, I should say, with, uh, uh, you know, melting walls and, you know, all that sort of projections on the thing and people dancing under smoke-filled lighting and, you know, because everyone smoked in those places. I was going to say, I'm sensing drugs yeah. here running <laughs> <Yeah>. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, seeing traffic the week after, a couple of weeks after uh, Mr. Fantasy album came out in the speakers, he went... Like being sort of 20 feet from Stevie Winwood, playing organ and singing, was I'd never forgotten. That was just uh, awesome, especially yeah. for a 19-year-old, yeah. you know, which is why when the group broke up, really all I wanted to do was go back there. Between that and the hot pants and miniskirts, that was enough to get me back there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you, you came back to Australia after that and did, is that when Such a Lovely Way came out and that was the literally the end of the band? The band just ran out of – look, once we lost Max Ross, because he never he, – he was quite ill. He, he picked up some weird thing, probably on the boat trip, because he was a bit of a wild boy. And uh, I think in Panama City he picked up something, a bit of a souvenir that um, uh, bit him on the bum severely. Max Ross, who's now – he's Natio Cosmetics. His family had lots of money. They were the Starla Cosmetic Company. He was had a career change, really. It was like a sort of decided he was giving it up. 
So we were down to Don Moody, Brian and myself and Richard Wright. Uh, So Don switched to playing bass and so we were just at Hammond organ, bass and drums and myself and I guess the whole experience of going to London, I know in Brian's case, Harry Vander played us the band music from the Big Pink and gave us our first puff of of, uh, of hashish in London and I think Brian, that changed his life and uh, his direction was definitely for that country rock where I was sort of more into the English and Winwood and traffic and that sort of progressive rock stuff. We just, our tastes were just growing in different directions. So Caddy was writing stuff like Arkansas Grass then, wasn't he? Yeah, he and, was and dabbling and smoking in that. It well, too, that, by the that was a direct spin-off of that, hearing that band album. He suddenly, he found himself as a writer from that time because before that it was just sort of a bit of a joy. Everyone had just come up with different ideas and Max Ross and Brian wrote a song called When I Was Six Years Old that Paul Jones recorded. Yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie Burns did the version here, didn't he? That's right. Everyone was trying. It was that period, mid-60s, same in England. And the best example is, you were talking about recording, is Ichiku Park is a really good example or hole in my shoe where suddenly you went from the traditional sort of straightforward tracks to things that had unusual middle bits in them. And Ichiku Park and Hole in My Shoe are really good examples of that. And in a way, woman, you're breaking me. And that sort of loved one stuff and all that was indicative of what was going on here too because before that, bands always just did covers. There wasn't a lot of writing before that. It was really only the masters probably, uh, early masters stuff. They were writing stuff, the loved ones in the group who were doing original stuff. And then there was that period at the end of the, the 60s when you had what was called supergroups, and that was true overseas, you know, with Blind Faith and things like that. And and with the breakup of the group and the Twilights, which Glenn Shorrock was in, you, you had Axiom, and that's when they started to get serious about their direction and writing and all that sort of thing, so...
such a lovely way. Boom, boom, boom. Great song. Love that song. I love that song. Uh, I quite like it. Yeah, and uh, we're going to get. I've got a little bit more of Ronnie that we'll play uh, in a in a forthcoming episode of uh, of the show where he talks about uh, being on stage with Roger Daltrey, uh, performing uh, Tommy, uh, doing uh, uh, with uh, with the help of a lot of people, uh, and mostly the London Symphony Orchestra, doing a version of Layla, which we'll play for you on the next show as well. So that's uh, that's coming up. That little bit about uh, Ronnie's sojourn in the UK. Uh, He's mingled with some of the greats. Oh, it certainly has. And yeah. still singing great these days, so you can catch him. Uh, still doing gigs around the place, uh, all sorts of uh, places, so make sure you check that out. Now, Sam Cutler, what a character. Yeah. What a Sam- character. Sounds like Keith Richards. Yes, tour manager for the Rolling Stones, manager of the Grateful Dead. Uh, this is in the late 60s, early 70s, but he's been around the music scene for many, many years. Lots of stories to tell and a really wonderful uh, philosophical bent on life that uh, that appeals to both Brian and myself. So uh, let's uh, let's bring you more. We brought you the Hyde Park story last time, but let's bring you more of the wonderful Sam Cutler. Finally, you woke up. Hello, Sam. I'm Kevin Hillier, and the other gentleman is, oh, well, I use that term loosely, that's Brian Mannix. Gentlemen, I don't talk to gentlemen. <laughs> uh, lovely to chat with you. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it because I know you're a man who sort of, you know, wanders around the universe these days, um, sort of doing what you want to do when you want to do it. Pretty much. I mean, you know, isn't that the meaning of life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> In some senses. I mean, yeah, you know what I mean? Once you get to be 80, you're allowed to be selfish. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, what, what brought you to Australia, I guess, is the most obvious question. The man who was the Rolling Stones tour manager and Grateful like Dead manager. Like 95% of all the other men in this country, a woman. <laughs> <laughs> my mother and my kids, she was a Brisbane girl. And she'd lived in, in, in Europe for years. I met her in London, actually. And, um, you know, usual story. We fell in love and all that stuff, which was lovely. Basically, uh, she'd been in Europe for many years. She's been away from her family for a long time and really wanted to come back to Australia and see them as they were getting old. And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know about that, Australia. <laughs> so anyway, we came out and had a look, at, and I loved it. So sure, this will do, fuck. If you don't like this, you know, you've got you got problems. So, we, yeah, that was, what, over 20 years ago now. That was how I got here, and that's uh, why I'm still here, really. Right. So you started out as a um, as an MC and a stage manager, Sam, is that right? Well, I was, you know, when I started in the music business in the mid-'60s, really, you could, uh, what you did was whatever was needed. Most of the people that uh, were working in the music business to begin with were all, you know, mates of the band or or just people who mucked in and, and helped, whether it was in Australia or uh, England or America. You know, it wasn't there was no such thing as kind of professional equipment guys or uh, <laughs> tour managers or stage managers, really. There may have been a few tour managers that, you know, took born-again Christians on trips to Lourdes, I don't know what they fucking did, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it was like a, um, very much a, uh, a situation where if you showed willing, you could kind of get involved. So I loved it, you know, I mean, I love music and I've, I've always played guitar, not very well, but, you know, for fun. And I loved uh, musicians and uh, wanted to be involved. And so the way to get involved in those days was just to get stuck in. And so, you know, I mean, all kinds of bands, famous bands, you know, the, the first people they had working for them, as I say, were friends or just people who, you know, wanted to help. And that kind of morphed into a proper job, if you like. <laughs> Can I ask you, when you were tour managing the Rolling Stones, what, does, what did an average day for you entail? Well, there was no such thing as an average day. I mean, the Rolling Stones are very easy to work with. They're very professional, man. When After I left the Rolling Stones, I was working with the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead for a while called me please and thank you because Americans never say please. They never say thank you. They're a rude bunch of bastards <laughs> in a way. You know what I mean? It's just not part of the American way. Say, would you mind passing me the salt, please? Forget it. Hey, buddy, pass the salt. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> just don't say please and thank you, you know what I mean? So I soon got over saying please and thank you to people. But the Rolling Stones are very polite and very civilised. Why not? You know what I mean? It's, uh, you don't have to be, um, you know, uh, the sex pistols when you're on tour. You can eat properly and sleep well and be in nice hotels. The Rolling Stones, you know what I mean? They've been around for fucking ever. So they're quite civilised guys to work with. So that wasn't really uh, what one could call a typical day. I mean, I mean, what's typical with working with any band is be up before the band gets up and, you know, go to sleep after they've gone to sleep. So who knows? That could be, you know, days that lasted four days or days that only lasted a few hours. There was no, you know, I mean, one of the reasons for being in the music business, really, for me was that there was no such thing as a typical day. You know, who the fuck knew what was going to happen? <laughs> you, know, it on, you know, it depended on who was taking what and, you know, different situations and whether there was a gig or not, whether you were in the studio. It was constantly different, which most, uh, you know, most adults would find desperately uh, difficult to deal with. I mean, but I, I always loved that. I mean, I, I, my, my background is uh, I was a war baby. I was born in the Second World War and an orphan, and uh, I was in a Catholic children's home until I was three, and then I was adopted. And uh, I've been a wanderer all my life. Uh. In some senses, I don't want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'd rather find out you know, a few hours before it happens kind of thing. Of course, the music business is now very kind of pre-programmed. It's not that you know, don't know what's happening tomorrow. You know what's fucking happening for the next six months, nine months. Oh, we're going on tour in America next year or whatever, you know. But it didn't used to be like that. It used to be much more um, immediate. Yeah, and the tour manager's like... I know what you mean. Like, he's the last to go to bed. He's the first up. He gets the least amount of sleep out of everybody and has the most responsibility in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if the band doesn't get there on time, it's the tour manager's fault. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Well, everything's the tour manager's fault. Well, didn't you get you blamed know? for the bloody Hells Angels at Altamont, which actually oh, wasn't, wasn't anything happened. to do with you? Yeah, pretty much. But, you know, I mean, it's like, that's it. It's just all par for the course, man. You just, you know, acceptance and not getting your, you know, your knickers in a twist is a big part of being a tour manager. In the final analysis, you could, uh, you could claim that you don't give a fuck actually. In the, you know, if when you know, I used to tell me, I've told Mick, uh, I've told everyone in the Rolling Stones and everyone in the Grateful Dead. I've always said to him, listen, let's get something straight. I'm not doing this job because you're fucking paying me enough money to do it. I do it because I love you and I love your music. That's why I'm doing it. Man, you know, I mean, I never, I got paid peanuts by the Rolling Stones. I got paid peanuts by the Grateful Dead and just about everybody else that I've worked with. But I wasn't really doing it because I wanted to get rich. If I wanted to get rich, I should have opened a brothel. <laughs> so sometimes I used to think I had opened a brothel, but that's, that's you know. That's the, but you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you know, in the end, tour managers work with bands because they love them. You know, they love them as people. They're, you know, I mean, I have no complaints about how uh, the bands that I work with treated me because anyway, I wouldn't let people treat me badly. But bands are, you know, bands are, are pretty clever you know, they're like, bands are like kids. They go, well, that's my mum and dad. I better be pretty nice to them because actually they're the fucking people who are in charge of the school I go to, uh, what I eat, you know what I mean, how I'm dressed, how I'm generally looked after. These are important people in my life. And it's like bands are the same with tour managers. It's like if I fuck with him too much, he'll just leave me somewhere. <laughs> you know, and I used to tell people all the time, I used to say, do you know what flight you're on in the morning? They go, uh, no. So I said, well, you better be fucking nice to me, aren't you? Because I got the tickets and I fucking know. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? You want to stay in Philadelphia for a few days? Oh, no, Sam. Right, well, fucking, you know what I mean? Relax, man, they're all cool. 
You know what I mean? Let's be nice to one another. We've got to get through this together. I mean, that's the other thing about a band, of course, you know. Most bands that are, are really successful, uh, the level of cooperation between everybody is pretty deep. I mean, you know, you don't have to be madly in love with your bass player, but, you know, at least everybody's very civilised with one another and gets along. And anyway, everybody knows the tour is going to end and then you can all fuck off to wherever you live and you don't have to see the bastard until next time you go out on the road. I mean, this Rolling Stones, you know, people often ask me, well, how come the Rolling Stones have, you know, been together so long? And I said, well, you know, they do a tour, then they all, like, fuck off to their separate lives. It's not as if they live together. You know, Mick's in Martinique, Keith's in fucking Connecticut. You know, Ronnie's in London or wherever. You know what I mean? They live in different parts of the world. They come together to, you know, be in a, in a recording studio or whatever. They come together to do a tour once every two years maybe, once every 18 months. It's not too hard. You know, the it's not a, a desperate kind of, oh, my God, I've got to see Keith and Ronnie again. Oh, <laughs> Hey, yeah, Sam, don't help I, if you, every time you see him, you make another few millions. <laughs> that kind of eases the pain. Sam, can I ask you about Charlie Watts when he passed? Yeah. Uh, I saw some stuff that you wrote on on your blog about, about yeah. that. Obviously, he was he was obviously a special human being. He's very sweet, Charlie. I mean, Charlie, Charlie. I mean, when he wasn't working with the Rolling Stones, Charlie had nothing to do with the Rolling Stones. Charlie lived the life of an English gentleman, you know had his suits handmade and, you know, lived in this wonderful Victorian mansion and had they had horses and, you know, lived this very uh, civilised life. Um, and that was part and parcel of his way of dealing of, with being in the Rolling Stones. I mean, I can tell you one thing about Charlie. When I first, when I did that show in London for the Rolling Stones and they were talking, okay, Sam, we want you to be our tour manager, right? I knew Charlie because he, he played various gigs that I'd, I'd been involved with and stuff. And uh, Charlie invited me out for dinner. He said, come to dinner, we'll have a chat about you being the tour manager. So anyway, we were at dinner at this nice restaurant. We were sitting there and we we hadn't even began the meal really. We'd ordered and everything and we were just having a chat. And then I see this guy approaching with a... Uh, um, autograph book? Autograph book, yeah. And he's got a glint in his eye. So as soon as he got to the table, I stood up and said, listen, man, we're just having dinner, you know what I mean? Let us have dinner. Come after dinner, and I'm sure Charlie would be happy to sign it. Charlie goes, no, 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 it's all right. I'll sign it. So he signed the guy's book, and off the guy went. He was happy. And Charlie said to me, don't ever forget, that's the guy that pays for dinner. Charlie was a, a lovely guy, very, very easy to work with, very easy to work with. He was one of those guys who was a sweet cat. Sweet cat, but all the Rolling Stones, as I say, if I wanted to criticise them, I mean, no problem. I'd fucking criticise the fuck out of them if I wanted to. But really, <laughs> they're all cool, man. They uh, they treated me uh, very nicely. I mean, Mick forgot to pay me, but that's, you know, that's Mick. Notoriously tight with his money, is he not? Tight as a duck's ass, mate. That's watertight. <laughs> what can you do? You know what I mean. He's like, you know, he survived a long time, isn't he? You know what I mean. And you, you know, hats off to him. Uh, whatever you think about them, uh, musically or whatever, or you know, you can think they're past it or whatever. They're still fucking doing it. So yeah, I mean, they couldn't do anything else anyway. What else are they going to do? If they weren't musicians, what would they be? Plumbers, electricians, tradies. Who knows? Music, you know, I mean, that's the whole point about the 60s, man. Music saved us all from a life of complete and utter boredom and tedium. There was something exciting to do. Let's go and be musicians, yeah. There was nothing like having a guitar between your legs. And, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, so that's what people did. What's your yeah. favourite Rolling Stones song? Oh, fuck. Well. Um, I don't remember that one. Yeah, right. No, they, they, the, the record company refused to put it out. My favourite song would be Wild Horses is one of them. Mm. Uh, Sister Morphine would be another one. They've done some great ones. You called think, your book, you can't always get what you want. Oh, I've, I thought that might have been. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, 
I think Wild Horses is one of the, the greatest uh, love songs. It's one yeah. of my favourite songs, you know, and I know that Keith wrote it for Anita when he was missing her, you know, and, uh, yeah, special song. So what about the, yeah. and, and the Grateful Dead? What, what would be your Grateful Dead choice? Well, I mean, it would have to be Dark Star, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, Dark Stars. Uh, I've got a, I've got a recording with something like eighty different versions of Dark Star on it. I can listen to Dark Star for three days. Grateful Dead, I, I have to admit, I, I'm never a big fan of the Grateful Dead. Love the Rolling Stones, obviously, but never a big fan of the Grateful Dead. Well, the Grateful Dead, it all depends on how many drugs you've taken, Kev, and, um, you know, they are a So you were best, a fan? <laughs> they are a dish best served with acid. But, um, <laughs> oh, God. You know, you get you get on the acid, Kev, and that right. Dark Star will be your favourite song. Oh, okay. You, you go, it's incredible. <laughs> Whoa, look yeah. at my hand. It's yes. growing. No wonder there's 80 versions of it that he can listen to. Goodness gracious me. No, thanks to Sam. And we'll, we might get Sam back uh, for our Christmas show uh, later on in the year. Uh, well, not that much later on now that we're into sort of almost October. Uh, so, yeah, we look forward to uh, catching up with Sam again now that he's back on the yeah. road doing some he's stuff. Thought- his thoughts on Christmas would be good, I reckon. Oh, goodness me. Uh, can you just imagine? Uh, as I mentioned, we'll have a little bit more of Ronnie Charles in uh, in the next episode too, talking about uh, the, the Layla times and all that. Uh, Sean Kelly's coming up on the program. You're good, mate. You beauty. Yeah, he's a ripper. He's one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet. Absolutely. Philip Brady, media ah. icon. He's a very, very entertaining man. Very funny man. Work with the greats of Australian television and radio and uh, and the media industry in this country. So uh, he's got some good stories to tell and we'll, uh, we'll tap into those with Philip. Uh, we're going to go to Los Angeles and uh, catch up with Gary Twin, the former lead singer of Supernaut. Oh, I like it both ways, Kev. I know you do, Brian, but what... what, what, what <laughs> Um, <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, so, yeah, I like it both ways, which was a massive hit uh, for Supernight. And uh, Gary these days, is uh, he owns a pub in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles and uh, hangs out with some very, very top echelon uh, music people like Glenn Matlock and Clem Burke. Yeah, and he likes his soccer. Yes, he does. Big, uh, yeah. is he West Ham fan? West Ham. Yeah. West Ham, yep. Uh, Same as the Queen. She was a West Ham fan. Absolutely. And uh, we're also going to catch up with Tony Burrows, the man who has that amazing record of being in the top ten in the UK, uh, three different bands, as lead singer of three different bands because he was a session singer who was like a gun for hire. So he had three at once. So we'll uh, we'll talk to Tony and uh 
forthcoming episodes, plus a whole lot of other things we've got going on as well. But a reminder about uh, our good mates at Murcott's, Brian, uh, if you're driving around or, you know, what, what's the, have you had much to do with the traffic scene in Queensland of recent times? Um, yeah, look, uh, To and from the airport? Well, I don't think you um, you come to Queensland because of the traffic. Um, it's, it's, they don't run it that well. Like, there's not that many cars, <laughs> but the lights seem to stay sh- red forever. And it's just, yeah, the traffic lights are all sort of different timings to what they are in Melbourne oh, okay. and other parts of the thing. But anyway, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a, Bit of a, a pain driving to Cool and Gatter, but um, you know it's part of life. Okay, one three hundred five 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 seven six. That's Murcott's number. Give them a buzz. Whether it's uh, driver awareness, whether it's defensive driving, whether it's you know jumping behind the wheel of a four wheel drive for the first time, and you you want to make sure that you know what you're doing, or whether it's a young driver in your family, give them a mm. buzz. One three hundred. Nice vouchers. Nice vouchers for Christmas, Kev. Yeah, exactly. Just bring up Murcott's. Do all your Christmas shopping over the phone, done, relax, go and have a beer. Or jump on the website, mercots.edu.au. All good. All right, uh, Brian Mannix, all dot, right. dot, dot. Uh, well, we'll let you go and enjoy the sunshine, the 25 degrees, and maybe a swim in the surf or the pool. Uh, and yep. the, the, the poor people just go back to what we're doing here, trying to keep warm and putting more <laughs> briquettes on the fire and, <coughs> you know, pre- trying to pretend that it's it's September, October, not uh, not the middle of June or July. Well, it's it's very summery up here, so yeah. I'm loving it. Good, mm. good. And, okay. we know, and we know where the sun shines out of, so on that note, we'll finish. Oh, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have fun, mate. We'll talk to you again soon. Oh, I care. Thanks, mate. <laughs>